You're listening to Life After Berkeley. I'm Curtis Killian. Today, a conversation with drummer Nate Morton, a member of the house band for NBC's hit TV show The Voice since it first aired in 2011. A 1994 Berkeley graduate, he has also appeared on the Rockstar Supernova and Rockstar In Excess reality shows, toured nationally in the American Idol band, and has shared the stage with Cher, Natalie Cole, Paul Stanley, and Chaka Khan. On the eve of the 10th season of The Voice, now airing on NBC, Morton visited his alma mater to share his story. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And Pleasure, Curtis. Returning to Berkeley, uh, Nate Morton, 1994 alumnus. Do you want to start off explaining how you got the gig on uh, NBC's The Voice? The way that I got the gig on The Voice was it came about kind of over the over over a string of years, quite frankly, in this sense. In 2005, if memory serves, I did an audition for a TV show called Rockstar in Excess. It was a Mark Burnett production, and it basically featured the remaining members of the band in Excess, and they were doing auditions to find a replacement front person uh, in the aftermath of Michael Hutchins' uh, death. And so that show, after a long audition process, wound up where uh, being the place where I would meet Paul Merkovich, the musical director of that show. Uh, and I would also meet, well, I played with Sasha before the bass player, but that was the first time that the three of us, Paul Merkovich, musical director, and then his rhythm section, or as you know, friends call it the kitchen, they call it the kitchen, uh, Sasha on bass, myself on drums. So Paul and the kitchen. Um, and so that show went for two seasons. We did a second season of it. And then from there, we kind of uh, combined on several subsequent projects. We uh, played together with uh, Cher in Las Vegas over the course of her Coliseum run at Caesars Palace. We toured together with Paul Stanley um, from KISS. We did a bunch of sessions in town together. And it was while we were playing together with Cher, and as that was winding down, that Mark Burnett, through NBC and the other producers and so on involved, began ramping up for this show, The Voice. And so essentially, through Paul's relationship with Mark Burnett, The Voice wasn't really an audition. The Voice was, hi Paul, it's your buddy Mark. I'm doing another TV show that involves music. Paul said, that sounds great. I'd love to do another TV show that involves music. Paul got the call to be the MD and then he brought along The Kitchen. He brought along Sasha and myself. So that's the way the gig came about. So in essence, you could almost say that the day that I began playing with Paul uh, in 2005 on Rockstar was basically the day that I got the gig doing The Voice. Leaving Berkeley mid-90s, what was your first big opportunity? Well, you know, it's funny. I get asked that periodically. Really the biggest, if I had to, if I had to pinpoint the biggest opportunity, I would have to say it was the Rockstar audition in 2005 because, like I mentioned, that's when I met Paul and that's when the birth of Paul, Sasha, and myself as a unit took place. If memory serves, I did an audition for an artist shortly before getting called to do the audition for Rockstar. Before I before I knew I was gonna get the call to do the audition for Rockstar, like Rockstar wasn't on the map. And I got a call to do an audition for an artist. And I had been very lucky. I'd done a successful sort of string of auditions. I did an audition for this newer artist, uh, a, a young woman named Billy Myers, shortly after I got to LA. And she had a, a big, you know, summer, sort of uh, summer single tour. You know, we went out, we did a bunch of shows. I did a, an audition for 
a, a woman named Vanessa Carlton, and I was fortunate to get. That's when I met Sasha. That's the first gig that Sasha and I worked together on, and then another young artist here and there, and then I got this call to audition for a big artist, right? And I was so excited, and I thought like, this is gonna be it. Oh my gosh! And I did the audition, and at the end of the audition, the artist said to me, "You sounded really great. I really liked your playing, and you know, good luck to you, but." we actually chose the guy that we heard right before you just came in. <laughs> they said, we actually chose the guy but we, that we heard just before you came in. And I went, oh, okay. And then I went home and I was bummed. And I was like, ah, oh, that, was, that was the opportunity of a lifetime, you know? When's that ever gonna happen again? And then cut to, I get a call for a month or a month or so later, I get a call to audition for Rockstar. And it's a call from a buddy of mine named Derek Frank was a bass player and he said you know i'm putting together a band audition for the show i did the audition i ended up you know was fortunate to get the gig and then the rest as they say is history so again in retrospect had i gotten the gig with that artist she proceeded to go out and tour for about a year and a half you know she had a successful record very very successful she went on tour for about a year and a half um but had i gotten that gig i would have missed the opportunity to have auditioned for rockstar and I would have missed the opportunity to meet Paul Merkovich. And Paul Merkovich has been, I mean, he's been like a big brother and he's been 85% of my gainful employment since 2005. And I wanted to tell you sort of how that came about because you don't always know your big break is gonna be your big break. I thought I missed my big break. And then it turned out if I had gotten what I thought was my big break, I would have actually missed what was my big break. <laughs> <laughs> right, funny how that works. So, um, and I can, you know, I can, I can tell you a little bit about what I um, did between leaving here and 2005. I graduated here in 94, as you mentioned earlier, and I hung around. I mean, I was playing. Uh, I had a, a, a pretty steady diet of local gigs that I was doing. I was playing, you know, jazz brunches on the spirit of Boston. I was playing uh, with pop and rock cover bands. I was playing some fusion over at Riles. I used to play with a guitar player who I believe is still around, Bruce Bartlett. I was doing some teaching. As a kid who wants to be a musician and you graduate college and you look around and everything that you're doing to support yourself is music related, you know, you're kind of like, okay, this, this kind of works for me, you know? And, uh, and I ended up playing with uh, Dale Bozio, uh, who was centered here at the time. Yeah. From missing, missing persons. persons, exactly. Dale Bozio yeah. from Missing Persons, and so uh, she would do occasional three week, four week, five week tours, and so yeah, so that basically kept me in Boston for another two to three years. When I enrolled in Berkeley, I didn't as I did not aspire for my career to end as a local Boston musician. That I I wanted to be on big tours and and do you know whatever the, the big show you know so uh so i moved out to boston or sorry i moved out of boston out to la in 98 or 99 and then basically yes strings of auditions and new artists and so on and one thing led to another and then you know there you go and did you envision yourself being the house drummer on a hit tv show never in fact i tell people this all the time in fact i've, I've shared this at both events where I just uh, where I just spoke. It's funny as I look back over my life, I'm fortunate that somewhere way back when someone said to me, the best advice I can give to you is 
always be listening to as much music as possible across as many different genres as possible, styles, cultures, always be listening to everything you possibly can. And hand in hand with that was always take every opportunity that you can to play as much different stuff as possible. And, you know, it was one of the great pieces of advice that I've ever gotten. And it's what I've always done since a very, very, very early age. So in essence, no, I certainly never went like, oh, I'm going to be the drummer on a hit TV, I mean, hit TV show. Come on. <laughs> right. No, I would have never thought that. But it's funny because somehow on some level, I was preparing for that my whole life, you know, and didn't really realize it. If you would ask me at Berkeley what my dream gig would have been, I might have said Sting or I might have said Peter Gabriel or I might have said Phil Collins, um, you know, something like that big tour. But that's because this gig didn't exist then. The voice did not exist. To my knowledge, no gig existed where you're literally playing over the course of a season, hundreds of songs. And you're playing hundreds of songs on television. So you're blessed with the balance of having a certain degree of visibility, but not having to tour, which for me at this point in my life, that's that's pretty cool being able to be home. I enjoy touring when the when the occasion comes, but the days of me wanting to be, you know, gone on the road 10 out of 12 months of the year are long gone. And now it's a higher priority to be able to spend time with my family. So to be able to play on a show and have visibility, sleep in your own bed at night, and at the same time have the experience of getting being able to go into the recording studio and record full-length versions of these tunes, you know, uh, for release on iTunes, which, you know, I mean, I couldn't ask for more than that. It's amazing. You know, as a side note, I will say it's interesting because now with iTunes and they're not being liner notes, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's interesting because we've literally recorded hundreds of songs. We, we might, I mean, in all the nine seasons that have aired, 10 hour in production on, I mean, we may have broken a thousand iTunes singles, and we've definitely broken millions of iTunes singles downloads. They just presented, uh, they just presented the Voice with a twenty. I feel like it was maybe two seasons ago, a twenty million downloads uh, plaque, you know, certification. Yeah, twenty million downloads. It's a lot. Yeah, you're in a lot of iPhones. Oh my gosh! <laughs> right? It is. It's funny. It's funny. I guess the only point that I was making to sum up is that yes i mean this gig has all of the elements that i would have ever wanted you know in a gig yeah, so what goes into preparing learning hundreds of songs you have a fairly unique notation i method. do i have sort of they call it my musical algebra which is you know numbers and letters and words and symbols that means something to me that everyone else looks at and goes that is nonsense but uh in terms of learning material, you know, I'll, I'll spare you the details on that and the specifics of the drumming of it. I'll simply talk about it from a band point of view. At this point, you know, learning music is like any kind of training. And that is to say, the more you do it, the stronger you get at it. And so at this point, as a unit, we've become very efficient at, at learning material. I remember when Paul and Sasha and I first started playing on Rockstar together, and we would have to learn, let's say, eight songs in a day, right? Now, up to that point, I was accustomed to sort of like doing tours and stuff. And if you do a tour, you rehearse for like, you know, you rehearse like the same 12 songs for, you know, two and a half weeks or something before you go out on tour. And so I remember we had to learn eight songs in a day and it was like, 
What? We have to what? We have to learn eight songs in a how are we gonna do this? And now it's gone from that to oh yeah, we have to, you know, get through these twenty songs today. Even though we're playing shorter versions of them, sometimes we're only playing a, a minute and a half version of a song or a two minute version of a song. It doesn't change the fact that just because we're only playing four bars of the bridge instead of sixteen. The keyboard players still have to dial the right sound for those four out of 16 bars. The guitar player still has to dial the right effects for those four out of 16 bars. But in terms of what goes into learning the material, I mean, in a typical day, if we have to learn a song, essentially it goes like this. Paul Merkovich, my big brother and musical director, will sing down a scratch vocal. He'll have a two minute cut of it. He'll listen to it in his cans and he will sing down the vocal. And by the way, we'll sing down like a spot on amazing vocal. I mean, he, the guy's ridiculously talented, but um, so he'll sing on scratch vocal. And then basically that's what we'll work to. We'll work to that and a click. And at this point, the rest of the guys either recharts or they have notes of some sort. And at that point, even with a song that's brand new, I mean, we can pretty much take it from never having heard it, never having played it together, like having heard it the first time that day to finished and ready to play with the artist in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you know? And a lot of that just has to do with the fact that there's very little guessing anymore with us. We kind of know what the other guy's gonna do. We sometimes do it before they do it, or we sometimes do it at the exact same time, and it's like, that's what I was gonna do there. How'd you know that's what I was gonna do there? I don't know, I guess because we played thousands of songs together, <laughs> you know? So yeah, that's kind of what goes into us learning the songs. And then between there and you actually seeing it on TV, there are usually at least two rehearsals with the particular artist. Depending on what part of the season we're at, oftentimes the first rehearsal is shot with the contestant's coach. So we'll do the song once, whatever it is, and the coach will say, okay, maybe try this here, try that there, make sure you fully enunciate that word there, and um, you know, don't, you know, don't close your eyes when you sing because you want to connect with the audience. Okay, then we'll do it again. And then they'll go, okay, that was a hundred times better. We totally loved it. And then they'll go to our uh, producer who does reality. Lee, have you got enough? And Lee will go, yeah. And we'll go, okay, and then you go next. Then we'll see that contestant again for a rehearsal that's just them and the band. And then that contestant will get to run their song at least twice on stage with the, the rig. There are multiple locations. We record in one place. We, sh we record for iTunes in one place, usually Henson Studios. We shoot the show in one place, which is Soundstage 12 at Universal in Universal City. And then we shoot reality somewhere else, which is usually like a soundstage in Burbank. So rehearsals in reality, Burbank, main stage, run through, show and that's kind of the way that that goes and somewhere in there we make it to the recording studio to record full-length versions for itunes yeah. uh, what role does technology play in this gig and how would that differ from like a normal drumming gig the role that technology plays specifically as it equates to me is very very simple what i use my laptop for is very simple i'm not running ableton i'm not running see i'm not doing any of that stuff i leave that to you know others who do that much 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 better than me literally Here's what I do with my laptop. When we come in to rehearse, Paul is gonna sing down the track, right? So we're doing, you know, I Drive Your Truck, country tune, right? So Paul's singing down, I Drive Your Truck, and I'm literally writing down my, my algebra notation as it's going down, which I'll spare you what it all is, but suffice to say, it's my little roadmap. I will literally type it in stickies. I'll just make it, I'll open up a sticky note, and I'll write the voice, season 10, blind audition charts. And I'll write, I drive a truck, I'll write my little notes under it, 
and then it's done. And we'll go through our whole day like that. Maybe we're doing 20 songs. Okay. Everything we do is recorded. Everything we do, every single note we play is recorded by someone. It's either recorded by Michael Bernard, our Pro Tools guy. Anything on stage is recorded by Randy Faustino, who does sound for the TV, right? Before we actually shoot the show, I can get the latest recording of us playing the song. It's usually our main stage run through. All those songs, I put them in my iTunes on a playlist. So Blind Auditions, day one. In iTunes, you can have it so that the fields that are showing are just the song title, the time, and then I take, and then comments. And in comments, I stretch that out the rest of the width of the page. I find my sticky note with all my charts and I copy paste my charts, my notation, into the comment section of the song. And my laptop is going straight into my mixing board and I'm monitoring off my mixing board, all right? My mix is also coming into my mixing board too on other channels. I can play from my laptop the song and only I can hear. So that's my whole little setup guide method. I will add that technology plays a major role in all of the other guys' lives as well because uh, Eric, is running a lot of um, soft synths and things from his laptop. So is Paul. Uh, and we just recently went to the system where the guys who read charts have iPad Pros now. For the longest time, the charts were in books. And literally, if we had 20 songs, one of our PAs who would basically serve as a music librarian would have to go through all like 800 bass charts and find the two minute, 20 second version of all the songs. Whereas now it's an iPad situation and he can simply flip. He doesn't even actually flip, he actually has a pedal. It's really cool. Are there any surprises during the show? We've definitely had things happen that could have turned out way worse. We've had contestants who, who would go to the wrong section of a song. You know, it's a music show and the people who are competing on the show have to audition and display their level, hopefully high level of musicianship the audience members do not, however, have to audition to be audience members. Therefore, things such as consistently clapping on two and four in time cannot be assumed all the time. And so we had a thing happen once where we had a, a, a duo performing and it was just the duo singing with our Bee Gees and a member of the duo was playing guitar. The crowd started clapping and I don't even know, they were all over the place. And so essentially the artist spent the entire time fighting between the click and where the audience was clapping and eventually, you know, started to go away from the click. And, you know, fortunately, it's the kind of thing that's not as noticeable. It's the kind of thing that when it happens, it's magnified in your head. Oh my gosh, that was awful. What just happened? And then when you see it on TV, it's not nearly, you know, as bad. You know, I find that happens a lot uh, to me. I'll play something, either I'll play something that like, I'm like, oh, that was really, that was really hip. I'm gonna go watch that one, see how hip that was that I just played. Or I'll play something and I'll go, man, I totally blew that fill. I gotta watch this and see if it's as bad as it seemed. And in both cases, it never is. It's yeah. never as hip as I thought it was. <laughs> and it's never as bad or as noticeable as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, perception is a funny thing. It is a funny thing. It's a funny thing. But yes, we, we so we've had a few near misses. We've had things happen where a contestant will come in in the wrong place. And to his credit, the guy who is on the hot seat on our show 
is a guy named Michael Bernard. He's running Pro Tools. The songs don't start until I hear the click, and that's Michael's responsibility. And if anything like that happens, where a contestant comes in in the wrong place, or skips a section, or does anything squirrely, rather than just bailing on it, rather than just going, okay, space bar, done. Michael will literally fly us to the exact marker point and he'll drop it right back in, bam! And it's like seamless. And in the thousands of performances, never really crashed and burned to his credit. And he is on the hot seat every single song. Logistically, a lot of the time, they will pre-record the strings because in terms of having a minute and 30 second commercial break, 20 strings on stage along with sets moving and get them mic'd and ready to go, a lot of time it's easier to, to be prepared with having that on track. So they'll be playing, but they'll be playing on top of pre-recorded strings or pre-recorded horns. But again, it's still very organic. And, and at the end of the day too, one of the things that we sort of pride ourselves on is it never ever feels like canned music. You know, there's always a little bit of an edge. There's always a little bit of a, I mean, I, I, I dare say, rock edge to um, it. Any advice for alumni in LA trying to uh, carve a similar path or auditioning for similar gigs? I hate it when I have to answer questions in, in such a cliche way, um, but it really is about networking and, you know, I would never go so far as to say it's not what you know, it's who you know. I think that's too trite. However, it is the case that by and large, Everybody can play. You're not gonna get the gig because you were the only drummer who walked through the door who could play solid time. Most drummers are gonna be able to play solid time. Most drummers are gonna have pretty good chops. It becomes about making connections with people and making relationships with people. I mean, who knew in 2005, meeting this guy for the first time, Paul, that ultimately 10 years later, he's gonna be responsible for 85% of all the gigs that I've done and for the biggest gig that I'm that I, the biggest gig that I'm current, currently doing and the biggest gig that I have ever done. It's 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 all relationships. So what's next for you? 30 I'm, more seasons of yeah. The Voice. <laughs> Make it 40. I see there's a new one coming up. Uh, it just keeps on coming. You know, we're doing two cycles a year. It's interesting because I try to fit in as much other stuff like being here, being able to, 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 to talk to students and play. I try to fit in as many sessions as I can. But it's interesting because in many respects, professionally, I have a hard time imagining what, what more I, I want. I know that sounds really strange to say, but it's like having reached sort of that that point a little bit, now I kind of focus on just the normal life stuff. You know, I enjoy playing, I love playing. There's nothing else that I'd rather be uh, employed at. But, um, but outside of that, kind of, I get to do family stuff now. Well, thank you so much, Nate. That's great, good luck on season well, we're in it? season ten right now. Season ten. We're shooting. We're shooting season ten, which starts airing in February. Well, this is February. It is February. So it starts yeah, airing in yeah, a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah, starts airing in a week or so, or whatever it is. Well, thank you so much. Man, pleasure's mine. Pleasure's mine. That was a talk with 1994 alumnus Nate Morton, who can be heard drumming on the tenth season of NBC's The Voice, now airing. Today's featured song was "Put Your Records On" from season four contestant Caroline Glazer, just one of the 20 million iTunes downloads featuring Nate's drumming. Thanks for listening, and to learn more about the great things alumni are doing around the world, visit alumni.berkeley.edu.